0: Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. This past fall, writer Sandra Cisneros published her first book of poetry in 28 years, Woman Without Shame. Cisneros, best known for her 1984 novel The House on Mango Street, is a poet, novelist, performer, and artist, and she's also a Buddhist. In her new poetry collection, she offers insightful and characteristically blunt meditations On desire, memory, and how she has learned to love her aging body. In today's episode of Tricycle Talks, I sit down with Sandra to discuss her writing process, how she combines Buddhist practice with the indigenous spirituality of her childhood, and what it means to be a woman without shame. Plus, at the end of the episode, Sandra reads two poems from her new collection. Okay, I'm here with poet and novelist, Sandra Cisneros. Hi, Sandra, it's great to be with you.
1: Good morning from Chicago.
0: Oh, you're on book tour, right? Almost at the end. So we're here to talk about your new collection of poems, Woman Without Shame. So what does it mean to be a woman without shame?
1: I think it means to be a woman, to be able to speak in our society, because so much of our society silences us. For me, it's been one of overcoming several shames in my lifetime. And you know, it doesn't mean that I've eradicated all of them. I still have some, but I'm 67 and now I know what to do with that shame. I write about it in my poetry and I transform it until it illuminates me and I'm able to speak. To publicly be in front of an audience, reading is a different order and has demanded a lot of courage, but it's brought a lot of calm to me as well.
0: So in the first poem of the collection, you distinguish between a woman without shame and a shameless woman. So can you share more about that distinction?
1: Well, a shameless woman is being judged. A woman without shame isn't thinking about judgment. She's beyond that. I think that's the major difference for me, to be able to speak my thoughts without censoring myself, thoughts without thinking about el que dirán, the what will they say you know, and dismissing evaluations from society.
0: You know, it's interesting. We just interviewed Bob Waldinger, who heads up a longitudinal study of people through their lifetimes. They've been doing it since the 1940s. And he was talking about regrets at the end of life. And he said one regret, and particularly for women, was, I wish I hadn't cared so much about what other people think.
1: I think that's absolutely right. For me, I was so obsessed with trying to gain the approval of the men in my life, my father, and then partners in my life. And when you're young, especially a teenager or in graduate school, your peers, with a lot of that. I think I had to dismiss also what society expected of a woman, you know, having to consider getting married and having children. And I was able to go my own path But it took some doing.
0: You talk about your books as your children, and you describe writing, like writing a poem, as giving birth in a way. Can you say something about that?
1: Poetry comes from such a private place. That's why I don't necessarily need to publish it. It's for me to understand myself and my life. And I really feel as if I harbor these poetry embryos for several months, years, before they are expelled and I write them, clean them up, swaddle them, and maybe I'll share them with someone else, but not necessary. It's not necessary for me as a writer to do that. For me, it's more about the reasons why we meditate, you know, the reasons why we retreat and transform whatever is obsessing us to illumination. It's more about my own spiritual development. Poetry is very, very close to meditation for me. It's not about anyone else but myself.
0: It's been 28 years since your last book of poetry. Can you tell us a bit about the book and what inspired you to write it, especially Why Now?
1: I think the question Why Now is really a question from people from the outside looking in. I've been writing poems since I was 11 years old. I've never stopped. In the last 28 years, I've been writing them, but I've not published them. So I'm writing them even now this year while I'm on book tour. I just don't publish them because I'm never satisfied. I don't feel they're finished. And I think I need to put them down and revise, revise, and revise. That's why you haven't seen them in a long time. I think there's a polar opposite about why we write and why we publish. And for me, the necessity of publishing, I fulfill with my prose. Poetry is a more private inner dialogue with myself it's private conversation and it's not necessary to publish it
0: so how do you know when it's finished
1: i think i know when it's finished like Thich Nhat han would say after i compost all of the garbage and a little white flower blooms from that compost pile <laughs> that's how i know
0: you know you've mentioned Thich Nhat han and you just mentioned meditation and spiritual development i think many listeners would be surprised to hear that you're a buddhist how did you first encounter buddhism
1: I first encountered Buddhism through a little book that Thich Nhat Hanh wrote called Being Peace. And a friend of mine gave it to me just before the Bosnian War. She lives in Sarajevo, and she was lost in a way, I mean, incommunicada during the war. And the book that she gave me gave me a path of how I could become active as opposed to passive about that war and about her safety and what I could do about not knowing whether my friend was alive. She, without knowing it, gave me a path to spiritual activism. And that began with that little book, Being Peace. The war in Bosnia affected me very deeply because I knew my friend and her family and her street and the citizens of Sarajevo. And the book helped me in the same way that Thich Nhat Han has helped so many other people live through wars, to enlighten me of what I could do as a private citizen.
0: So that's Buddhism. I'm wondering also if you could share a little bit about your childhood and how you first came to writing. You said you were writing from very early on.
1: Yeah, I come from a house with no books that aren't stamped property of. You know, we had books, but they were the property of the school, the Chicago Public Library, because. We didn't have the resources to buy books, and I came to my writing by way of school textbooks that had poems in them, and they were very musical and beautiful to me. They gave me permission to explore elements of my own life that I felt overwhelmingly beautiful. Trees and wind and sunset. I was in middle school, and I wrote in private without showing them to anyone. They were just things that allowed me to express myself the same way that drawing fulfilled a part of me. I was a visual artist, I still am, and poetry came from that same place, that same need to speak, speaking with words, but first I spoke with images.
0: Did you grow up with any religious background at all?
1: Well, you know, I grew up Mexican, so we have the cultural icon of the Virgen de Guadalupe in my home. My parents were not strict Catholics per se. They were Mexican, but they were very fluid about our spiritual beliefs. We went to Catholic school because we had no choice living in the neighborhoods we lived in. There was the choice of going to the public school and having a dangerous time there. We always lived in racially tense neighborhoods. We couldn't really go to the public school because the black students would see us as white. You know, we were not white, but that's how we were viewed. You know, Chicago is a very segregated community, and we lived as Mexicans in the border between warring white and black communities. We were the border. So we had to go to Catholic school, even though we didn't have any money to be there. So my father always had to get a tuition break, and that tuition break allowed us to go to Catholic school. But we really weren't devout. We were just going to Catholic school because of racial tension in Chicago. And because we could get a better education, there was a lot of chaos in the public schools in the inner cities where I live.
0: You know, you mentioned Guadalupe, and I know that you call yourself a Budalupista, a term that honors the Buddha and Our Lady of Guadalupe. Can you share more about how you combine your Buddhist practice with the indigenous spirituality you grew up with?
1: Well, it was Thich Nhat Hanh that reminded us that we had to go back to our cultural roots, You know, my father's family is from the neighborhood, the Basilica of the Virgen de Guadalupe, and that's where I used to play as a child. I made a trip to that basilica as an adult, and it was the first time that I had a very profound connection with the energy and the community and the people and their faith. It wasn't necessarily a connection with the Catholic Church. No, it was a connection with that spiritual site, with the land, and with the poorest of the poor who were coming to put their energy there and hold that energy there. So I don't see myself as Catholic and I don't see the Virgen de Guadalupe as the mother of Jesus. The Virgen de Guadalupe that I visualize is simply an energy for love. That's how I understand it, that I had to open my heart to the Virgen de Guadalupe because of her gender and her color. But I understand her as as simply a vessel of love.
0: I understand that you have a tattoo of the Virgin of Guadalupe (laughs) in the Lotus position.
1: (laughs) Yes, I do. She's actually a merging of Guan Yin and uh, the Indian goddesses and the the Virgin of Guadalupe and Quartlique is there. It's just a, a fusion of the goddesses. So to me, you know, it, it, it's all just a, a metaphor for love, mm-hmm. for love and compassion.
0: So, Sandra, you were born in Chicago, as you said, and later lived in San Antonio. But in 2013, you decided to move to Mexico. What made you decide to move to Mexico and what has it been like living there? I understand you're in San Miguel de Allende.
1: Yes, that's correct. It's hard to explain this to people who haven't experienced a spiritual voice that woke me up in the middle of the night when I was first visiting San Miguel de Allende. I was awake in the middle of the night and a voice came into my head and said, you are not your house. It was a mental voice, it wasn't in English, it wasn't in Spanish. That time in my life I was terribly involved with my foundations and with the legacy of my home and its property since I'm single and don't have any children. I was involved in planning to leave that to the city of San Antonio and to my foundations, the Macondo writers, that wake-up call made me understand that I was not my house, I wasn't my property, I wasn't my foundations, and that I needed to return to my writing and stop being a philanthropist and an arts administrator. It woke me up, made me realize maybe I need to come back to San Miguel de Allende, which is 100 kilometers from where my ancestors emigrated during the Mexican Civil War and finished my next book, House of My Own. So that's where I went. And it was because of this voice that entered my head. If it had come from me, I would have had a lot of doubts. But I've had other experiences like that in my past where sometimes a message comes to me. And I heeded that message. Heeded. (laughs) H-E-E-D-E-D. And followed it as I have in the past, and it's always taken me on my spiritual path. I trusted that message. I think that being in Mexico has brought me in touch with a society that is deeply indigenous and deeply connected to the spiritual, and that has helped me on my spiritual path.
0: Yeah, San Miguel's interesting because it brings a lot of different people together. It's very Mexican. At the same time, it's very international. There are people from everywhere there. That's right. That must be nice.
1: Yeah, well, for someone like me, I'm kind of international too. I'm from Chicago. (laughs) So it seems a perfect fit.
0: So many of the poems in the collection read like imagined rituals, I guess I would say. Remedy for social overexposure, which I loved. Instructions for my funeral and instructions for vigiling the dying. Can you speak to the role of ritual in your work? Are there any Buddhist rituals that have been important to you too?
1: I tend to create my own rituals. And for myself and my writing and speaking, I like to have a meditation where I connect with my ancestors. It's very important for me to connect with my ancestors when I meditate. I just feel it puts me in a zone of love immediately, it puts me in a zone of intention and of dissolving my ego. It helps me to dissolve my ego if I can do work that honors my ancestors. And I start specifically with ancestors I can name, and then I visualize their ancestors. And that helps to make me feel secure and brave because my life is so easy compared to theirs. Puts things in perspective, gives me a sense of service, And humility which you need as a writer
0: thank you that's very nicely put i've been thinking about another theme that runs through the collection and it's the visceral experience of aging particularly embracing your body as it ages over time so anyone alive should be able to relate to that and one of the poems is titled at 50 i am startled to find i am in my splendor can you say more about your relationship to your body as it has changed over the years I mean, many people want to turn away from the body as it ages, and yet you're embracing it.
1: Well, I don't think we teach women, especially, to document and celebrate instead of just grieving. You know, all the creams, everything we see in society, all the cosmetics, all of the super celebrities are about fighting aging. But I like where I am. And my model for beauty is Maria Sabina, the Mexican shamana. She certainly had a face that looked like a map of origami. I like her. I like the indigenous women and their older faces. And I'm waiting for my gray to come in. I only have a few strands. I can't wait. (laughs) I love it because I feel as if, you know, especially in Mexico, that we revere and honor our elders. And I know I honor and revere my elders because they're so smart and they've been around the block. So I want to be a model for younger women to embrace and celebrate everything they've earned with the years. I don't want to look like a young woman. If I had the choice, I would never want to be in my 20s again. That was such a difficult time in my life, and I like who I am now.
0: You know, about waiting for gray hair. I didn't have to wait. It started when I was about 20, 21.
1: So you have <laughs> a
0: lot of great black hair. So I'm jealous.
1: <coughs> well, I'm jealous of you.
0: reverse. So, you know, back to the idea of shame. Aging causes people shame. They're changing, weakening bodies. And women in particular are conditioned to be hypercritical of their bodies, as you pointed out. What has working on this book taught you about shame? Because it's something that you work against in the poetry. But how did actually working on this help you to work through shame? Or had you already worked through it?
1: You know, I wasn't even aware because I don't see my poems as a book. I write as if I can't publish them in my lifetime. So it's more like a journal. And it helps me to explore things that I'm a little frightened about, to overcome fear. A lot of the poems about aging, I didn't realize they were about shame. They were more about fear, like, oh, my God, what's that? What happened to my eye? Why didn't anyone tell me? You know, this conspiracy of not warning me about what was around the bend. So I feel as if I'm documenting it for myself, but I'm also documenting it for others, because if we don't document something, it never happened. And I want other people to know, Okay. Don't invest in fancy shoes, because guess what? Your feet size, that's going to (laughs) change. I wish someone had told me before I bought so many shoes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny, because I sometimes feel that way, too. Why didn't somebody tell me that this would happen? But in fact, it's all around us. All the evidence is there. We just don't want to see that. Is that right?
1: (laughs) I guess we're not listening, right?
0: Yeah. Old age can feel so abstract when you're 20.
1: Yes, I think that that's true. I think when you're 20, you're not listening to anyone over 30, (laughs) (laughs) especially the boomers.
0: (laughs) In one poem, Year of My Near Death, you write that you, quote, marvel at the body's power to speak, mend, resurrect, forgive. I was struck by the word forgive. Can you say more about the body's power to forgive? Mine doesn't feel very forgiving this
1: morning. For me, as a daughter, it was very difficult to have my mother as my mother. I think daughters and mothers have difficult relationships, the way sons have that difficulty with their father. For me, that line was about my mom and coming into older age, understanding her, being at her deathbed and witnessing her spirit leave her body, which I was able to perceive, made me see and recognize her in a way I never had in all the years she had been alive. And all the years that I had been alongside her, I never saw her. When her spirit left the body, I had this physical sensation of her energy. That was a gift she gave me. I I actually could feel her energy floating around and dissipating and departing. And it was so filled with tenderness and love. That at first I didn't recognize it was my mother because she was kind of a tough cookie. And to suddenly understand, oh my God, that's my mom without all the bravado, all the disappointments, the shell that she had to create to protect this tender core. And it made me start crying because I had never met her until she was departing. I asked forgiveness for making her life difficult, and I was able to forgive her because she was my guru in a sense of her patience, among other things. And I realized, wow, what a gift to be able to perceive someone's light leave their body. I'm still in awe and filled with gratitude because my brother was in the room too, and he did not perceive it. But maybe because I'm an artist or an empath. Or my radar disk is bigger. I don't know why, but I was able to experience that. Quite memorable.
0: Yeah, I mean, that doesn't sound so far off to me. I mean, my experience of something similar was that at that moment of passing, that something changed, something was different, something had passed. This distinct, almost visceral, not participation in, but perception of a momentous change, a life has passed.
1: For me, it was visceral. It wasn't a metaphoric. I'm speaking very lucidly and clearly about an experience that you would feel and you could perceive in a way that one can perceive when there's a moth in the room fluttering against the light bulb, how you can perceive that. It was like that. Right. I felt other spirits leave their bodies, but it wasn't like that. And they were each distinct, which makes me conclude that everyone's energy is quite unique and distinct and I just feel lucky that I was able to perceive it.
0: Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by the Mindfulness Meditation Podcast presented by the Rubin Museum of Art, a museum in Chelsea, New York City that connects visitors to the art and ideas of the Himalayas. Every week, the Rubin presents a live guided meditation session inspired by a different artwork from the museum's collection and led by a prominent meditation teacher from the New York area. The Mindfulness Meditation Podcast is a recording of the weekly practice which includes an opening talk about an artwork and that session's theme, followed by a 20-minute meditation for beginners and skilled meditators alike. Recent teachers include Sharon Salzberg, Kimberly Brown, and Lama Arya Drolma, to name a few. Find inspiration in the art from the Himalayas. Learn to quiet the mind, open the heart, and engage with the world more consciously. Listen to the Mindfulness Meditation podcast wherever you get your podcasts or at Rubinmuseum.org. Now let's get back to our conversation with Sandra Cisneros. You say that you write poetry because you push truth out from your womb. I mentioned this earlier. Could you say something a little bit more about the writing process?
1: Yeah, you know, I write prose. I write essays and novels and short stories. And I'm working on a libretto right now for the house on Mongo Street, the opera. But writing poetry is very different. Writing poetry is more embryonic. It's as if you experience things in the day that are like a tiny little embryo that maybe nest in a very profound place. For me, I use the idea of the uterus. It seems to be precise for something that grows there and that I have to expel. It can be something wonderful. It doesn't necessarily have to be a negative experience, but I feel that I nurture emotions inside my uterus and I keep them there for a while until it's impossible for me to Bypass it. It's gotten too large and I've got to expel it. That's giving birth to a poem. It's very small and imprecise when it begins and terribly hard to hold in my body if it grows and comes to fruition. And a lot of poems are stillborn. You know, if I don't nourish them, they don't finish their gestation. So it matters that I nourish my poems and that I take care of my spirit so that these poems can see the light.
0: So I'm curious also about what your spiritual practice looks like now and how it relates to your work, or are they one and the same?
1: They're one and the same. I like to meditate in the morning, and if I have time, like I've been on a book tour, so it's been necessary to take time in the middle of the day, in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the overdose of stimulus and just be quiet, even if it's you know on a plane. And then in the evening, before I go to sleep, and it really has helped me to process all the people I've been meeting on this book tour. I've been on a book tour since September 10th, and I'm in bed 21 of a 22-bed trip. You can imagine <laughs> all the cities, all the people, all the hotels, all these stories that people have shared with me and that I've shared with others. It's been a tour of gratitude and astonishment. And it doesn't uh, surprise me that I'm ending the tour in my hometown, Chicago. I'm sitting here looking out the window at my old neighborhood where I had my last apartment where I wrote House on Mongo Street. I can see St. Mary's Church here in Bucktown, and I can see downtown. And it's been a beautiful spiritual journey, traveling with this book and coming to terms of who I am now and how lovely to make this route back to my beginnings.
0: In your interview in the November issue of Tricycle, you said that you think of poems as being like the bells that summon monks to prayer. What do you mean by that?
1: I mean that every day there are mindfulness bells that ring in a metaphoric sense someone will say something to me, or I will see something as I'm walking or writing or talking with readers or witnessing a speaker at a book fair that I'm attending. There's just so many things that happen in one day. I know when something's the possibility of a poem, it resonates like a mindfulness bell. And I don't have time during the book tour to Sit with it more than a second. Maybe note down potential poem. I have a little yellow notebook that I carry with me, or I might put it in my iPhone. Although I don't like doing that, I like writing longhand. And I'll say, okay, someone said this or possible poem about this, and I'll come back later. Those are the little mindfulness bells that remind me: take your time, come back to this idea when you're alone, and sit with this. And see if a poem doesn't rise from this note.
0: You shared the poetry made you wake up to the gurus that were around you, the ants in your shower, the magay trees, the chihuahuas. Can you share more about how poetry has helped you pay attention to the world around you?
1: Yeah, I feel as if my whole life I was looking for love in all the wrong places. You know, it sounds like a country and western song. I think there is a song like (laughs) that. Yeah, there is. I always thought that love was going to be a person, and I didn't realize that love was all around me, and it was showering me with love. (laughs) But I didn't know to listen or to look and to sense it. And now, especially with the pandemic and lockdown, I've been in my convent of one, really paying attention to the flora and fauna around me, the experiences of being by myself without interruption and being very quiet and being very amused and enlightened by small things. You know, sometimes the color of a spider contrasted with the rose that it lives in. Or sometimes it's just the light at a certain time of day or the clouds crossing over my terrace or my animals, because I live with four little dogs. Each of them has taught me so much and continue to teach me. So I feel fortunate that I did a spiritual retreat during the pandemic. I feel a little shame sometimes that I savored lockdown so much when so many people were suffering i found that i needed to wake up to my own company and to the gurus that were all around me sending me love
0: there's so much about writing is solitude so you were taking that opportunity to experience solitude is that correct
1: i like being alone actually if i was allowed to i would go live in a cave and put a rock in front of it but <laughs> my agent and society compel me to be the author which is the opposite of being the writer
0: Well, it's very nice of you to do the podcast with us. So in the final sentence of the acknowledgments you write, I have winnowed these poems from three decades, two countries and too many houses. In 17 days, I will be 67. It is time I let them go. What does it look like then to let go?
1: Isn't all of life about letting go? I think in a couple of weeks, I'll be 68. So it's been some time since I lifted my pen but i think it's a practicing letting go and accepting and being where you are i think that's where i'm supposed to be i don't know because i'm only 67 but i hope to learn more in the years that come before i transform into a magay i really hope because i feel like i'm just scratching the surface james i feel like i've got a long way to go i'm just a baby buddhist <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i don't feel like i've mastered anything except what my writing has taught me. And I'm trying to serve my apprenticeship, and I'm dazzled by what I'm learning at 67. I look forward to the next chapter of my life because I feel everything in my life has brought me to this apprenticeship. The Buddhism, the travels, the writing, the move to Mexico where I'm in a community that's so spiritually aware living in the country of Mexico, with so close to nature, all of it is about serving my apprenticeship. And I'm so grateful and excited to be almost 68, very young, and a long way to go before I call myself master of anything.
0: You know, it's interesting when you said, it is time I let them go. I was thinking of letting the work itself go. I mean, letting the poems themselves go. Is that correct? Is that what you meant?
1: I mean letting the poems go, yes, but I also think that's a good mantra for the years that are ahead of me. I think it's both now that you mention it. When I wrote that line, I meant, I'm going to share these poems finally. They're mine, and I'm ready to share my most private thoughts. But I think it's a good mantra for the apprenticeship I'm serving.
0: I thought of Ocean Fong. We interviewed him some time ago, and he talked about once it was written, he puts it on the river and lets it float downstream. He sees too many riders floating downstream with it and eventually sinking. So he needed at a certain point to let the work go.
1: That's a beautiful visualization. I need to hang on to that about other things that i got to let go too. <laughs> so thank you for that lesson today.
0: Well, thank you so much, Sandra. It's really wonderful to be talking with you. To close, would you mind reading a poem or two? I mean, sure. pick two of them, but if you prefer to read another one, that's fine too.
1: Oh, do I get to pick?
0: Well, you can go ahead and pick. We picked at 50, I started to find I'm in my splendor and remedy for social overexposure on pages 10 and 12. But if I, you like to, no, oh, I like those. No, I like those. Are, those are good those.
1: ones. All right. This is a poem I wrote, of course, without ever realizing anyone was gonna see it when I was 50, but I need to write another one when I turn 68 in a couple of weeks. At 50, I am startled to find I am in my splendor. These days, I admit, I am wide as a tule tree. My underwear protest, and yet, I like myself best, without clothes, when I can admire myself as God made me. Still divine as a maha, wide as a fertility goddess, though infertile I am as they say, in decline, teeth worn down, eyes burning yellow, a belly bound to fall, and flesh Beneficent I am. I am silvering in crags of crotch and brow. Amusing. I am a spectator at my own sport. I am Venetian, decaying splendidly. Am magnificent beyond measure. Lady Pompadour roses exploding before death. Not old. Correction. Aged. Passe. I am but vintage. I am a woman of a delightful season. El cantarito. Little brown jug of la loteria. Solid. Stout. Bottom planted firmly. And without a doubt. Filled to the brim, I am. I said the brim. Wonderful. Remedy for social overexposure. Seek a pirul tree and sit beneath immediately. Remove from ears and tongue words fast from same. Soak. In a tub of seclusion, rinse face with wind. In extreme cases, douse oneself with sky. Then swab gently with clouds. Dress in clean pressed pajamas, preferably white. Hold close to the heart. Chihuahuas kiss and be kissed by same consume a cool glass of night read poetry that inspires poetry write until temperament returns to calm place moonlight in a bowl sleep beside and dream of white flowers.
0: That's wonderful. So, Sandra Cisneros, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I've had so much fun talking to you, James. It's not often that I get to talk to other Buddhists, so this has been a treat.
0: It's a great treat for me, too. I don't get to talk to Buddhist poets that often myself. So So for our listeners, be sure to pick up a copy of Sandra's new book, Woman Without Shame, available now. You can also check out an interview with Sandra in the November issue of Tricycle. So, Sandra, great pleasure again.
1: I ustedes, thank you, muchos gracias, muchos thank yous.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to Tricycle Talks with Sandra Cisneros. To read an interview with Sandra in the November issue of Tricycle, visit tricycle.org/magazine. Others featured in the issue include Pema Chodron, Sozhi Rinpoche, and Daniel Goldman along with teachings on anger, aging, and an antidote to self-criticism. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org to let us know what you think. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep up with the show, you can follow Tricycle Talks wherever you listen to podcasts. Tricycle Talks is produced by As It Should Be Productions and Sarah Fleming. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review.